Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And it is usually at this time when I tell you how excited I am to be here this morning. Um, and indeed, my spirit is. Um, my body would like to be somewhere else, but uh, praise the Lord, when we are weak, God is strong, is He not? And uh, so we'll, we'll lean upon God this morning and maybe this stool for a little bit as well. And um, so I invite you to find your way to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. I want to talk to you this morning about the humility of Christ. Um, but before I do, I, I feel like I need to um, uh, make a confession of sin to you. I, I plan this morning by, if God is willing to exhort you to humility, I challenge you to live like Jesus. And uh, in light of that, um, God, through this text and, and through a dear sister of mine, has helped me see an area of sin in my life. And, and it's a public sin, and I believe it needs, therefore, to be confessed publicly to you. And uh, it is taken place, um, well, I would just say I, I have committed the sin of pride is the sin I'm referring to, and I have committed this sin, I believe, um, when I, during my uh, last message to you while I was preaching to you, made some comments about other churches who love Jesus and love the gospel. I, I feel a great danger in the American church is when we organize our communities of faith around felt needs. I feel like we lose the power that the church is supposed to have when we're supposed to organize around our love for Jesus and love for one another, not what I get out of it. My intention as your pastor is to warn you and to protect us of what I consider a perversion in American Christianity. Um, and I, I plan to do that. I have done that. I, I will do that. I believe Paul and James and Peter and John and Jesus all warned us of things that are going to invade the church. However, in my attempt to, to protect us and to be engaging, I exalted myself in my own heart. And I looked down upon those who want to love Jesus. And I too have blind spots and sin in my life. And I don't want to communicate to you a message that, that we're, we're the better Christians because we do A, B, and C. And that's exactly what I did. And, and this text has taken a hold of my life and um, I've done the opposite of what I'm supposed to do. You're supposed to follow your pastor. And so I have, I have failed to pastor you and I have failed to keep my eyes on the cross. And so I ask for your forgiveness for my pride, I ask that you would pray for me, that I would become like Jesus, as we consider here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Hear now the word of God. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Father, we thank you for your word that we can come now and consider. We praise you for what Jesus has done for us, his great sacrifice for us, his humility for us. He has come to this earth and humbled himself that he might rescue us from our sin, like pride, and at great and infinite cost to himself. And in doing so, he has left for us an example of who we are to be if we are to follow Jesus, if we are to be like Jesus. And so I pray that you would help us this morning to simply gaze upon the beauty and majesty of the humiliation of our Lord in his rescue of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. J.R.R. Tolkien in his books, The Lord of the Rings, tells a story of a couple hobbits named Frodo and Sam who set off from their comfortable village on a mysterious quest. And soon after their departure, they encounter this menacing stranger um, who, whose wandering ways have caused the locals to view him with great suspicion, and they've even named him Strider. Well, soon these two hobbits will learn that not only is Strider an ally, he is actually the king. He's the king of that land in disguise. Of course, Tolkien didn't come up with this idea of a king walking amongst his people in disguise. It traces back to English folklore when Robin Hood, would, story Robin Hood, referred to Richard the Lionhearted, who would return from the Crusades disguised as, as an abbot, or Ivanhoe, who was portrayed the king as a mysterious black knight. And so we see this throughout literature, but, but the source of this idea of the king coming in disguise is not even found simply in, in literature. It, it extends far, far back. It extends to a far truer source. In fact, we see in the Word of God that our king of kings seems um, uh, to prefer or to enjoy, if you will, to disguise himself and come and be amongst his people and only after a period of time then to reveal his identity. And so you go as far back as Abraham as he entertains three nomads, only to realize that soon afterwards, one of them happens to be the God who sent him to that land. Or you have the story of Jacob, who upon returning to the promised land, is confronted by this mysterious adversary who he engages in conflict. And as day, uh, night turns to day, he only then realizes that the one he is fighting with is God himself. Or consider Peter who, after a long, difficult night of fruitless fishing, is once again goes out upon the lake at the request of this rabbi Jesus. And it is only when his nets begin to burst and the boat begins to seek that he realizes this rabbi standing in his boat is the Lord of creation. Or consider Mary who there at Easter Sunday comes to the gardener with eyes blurred by tears and says, where is his body? And then only to realize once he calls out her name, Mary, Mary, that standing before her is no gardener but the risen Lord. Or consider those pilgrims lumbering their way to Emmaus 
And they're joined by a mysterious stranger who tells them through Scripture that the Messiah Himself must march through suffering in order to return to glory. And it's only after they eat a meal that they realize the One speaking to them is Jesus Christ Himself. It seems like God likes to come under disguise. And only after a lesson is taught or a hard encouraged or a rebuke is given, then we discover the, the majesty in which He embodies leaving those individuals in overwhelming awe. This is a, a theme that the scholar Philip Johnson writes about when he explains that this familiar but amazing story that Paul rehearses for his friends in Philippians chapter 2 in um, in heightened language and matchless eloquence, Paul tells us the story of a king who stooped to serve and who by serving conquered. And so I want to consider this, this service of Jesus, the humility of Jesus as He comes down. And, and you know He simply didn't come in disguise, did He? Like Richard the Lionheart putting on an abbot's gown only to take it off at a later time. It was not a disguise for Jesus. He he, he who existed forever in, in fellowship and love at, with the triune God became part of creation. He became human. And He did so not simply to rebuke or teach or to, to encourage us. He didn't need humility to do those things. He came and became a human in order that He might die for us. And so the text that we will observe this, this morning, we, have, we see the heights from which Christ has descended in order to save us from our rebellion. It is one of the most significant, probably the most significant passages, certainly in Philippians, if not the entire Bible. One commentator writes, the passage is a majestic mountain peak towering over the surrounding countryside. It is a pinnacle theological truth piercing the heavens and probing the mystery of the Incarnation. Its dramatic movement traces the inverted arc of Christ's redemptive mission from divine glory down into humiliation and death and then up again to heaven's heights in resurrection splendor. And so today we're going to just consider half of it. We're just going to look at His humiliation, His descent. And as, as we do... I want you, I just want you to realize when we look at the hum, the, the, that Christ has been humbled, that Christ is humbled, excuse me, I don't want you to think that He has been humbled. He is humble, but He has not been humbled. As you see in verse 8. Look, He says that, and being form, found in human form, He humbled Himself. He was not humbled. Pilate did not humble him. The high priest did not humble him. The Romans did not humble him. He, he chose to humble himself. How different, therefore, is he from you and me who are constantly humbled by people who are above us with greater power or wealth or prestige or wisdom or even of our own foolishness tripping over a rock as we embarrass ourselves. Christ did not trip over heaven's throne and fall down to Calvary's cross. He did this to Himself. The philosopher Kierkegaard wrote, the infinite difference between Christ and every other man lies in this. 
that in every humiliation which he suffers, it is absolutely necessary that he himself must be willing to submit to that humiliation. Even death. He had to assent to die. He would say in John chapter 10, I lay down my life and no one takes it from me. It is a glorious picture of what Jesus has willingly done for you and I. And my fear in considering this morning is that we will recognize its majesty and we'll be overwhelmed with how wonderful it is, this descent of Jesus to come for us. But we will treat it like a a painting hanging on a wall that we occasionally walk by and nod in approval thinking, isn't that beautiful? And then go on our way. This picture of Jesus is not given to you, Christians, so you simply can fill your mind with theological truths. Though you can and you ought to, and we plan to do so this morning. But Paul's concern is far more pastoral than it is theological. As you remember from last week, the context from which he is writing this, he is calling this church who is threatened to to fracture itself through its bickering and its selfish ambition, and he is calling them to have one mind and one heart and to lay aside the pursuit of vain conceit and count others more significant than yourself. And He is calling for them to do that. And as soon as He lays out this humble unity that He is seeking, He says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He gives us Jesus as a picture of what it looks like to do what He's calling us to do. And so we would do well, before we begin considering these verses, that that we would remember that it wouldn't be not in a million years would Christ have done the work to save you if He looked, not, it looked only to His own interest. You would still be in your sin if all He considered was Himself. And so I want us to consider our King's descent. And my hope is that it shapes you. That you become overwhelmed by it. It is not something you simply admire, but it, it becomes part of who you are and part of how you live. I'm not here this morning to give you a list of things to do. I'm not, I'm not going to lay out, here's the ten things you need to do now as a Christian. There is no power in that. That will not work. It doesn't work. If you succeed, all you do is get built up as a Pharisee. If you fail, you despair and think, what's wrong with me? Rather, I call us not to white-knuckled discipline humility, but to be overwhelmed by the humbling of Christ for you that it would change who you are. And so let's consider His step down. Three steps Christ takes downward. First, Christ humbling self-denial in heaven. Notice verse 6. Who though He was in the form of God. And so stop there. Jesus is the eternal God. The writer says that He was in the form of God. So this is where we're beginning. We're not. We're beginning in, in a place that's beyond our imagination. And we can't understand what this is like. But in order to see the self-denial of Jesus, we go to heaven first. We go to the place 
from where he left, where he laid aside his dignity. We recognize that he did not begin as a man named Jesus, but he has existed eternally as God in the form of God. And please don't understand that form of God to refer to external pattern or shape. You might think, okay, he's in the form. He looked like God. There's actually a Greek word for that. That's not the word Paul uses. He's actually referring to an internal likeness. And so God, so Jesus was, didn't simply act like God or look like God. He is in his very nature God. He is the eternal God. This is the repeated testimony of scripture. This is why they killed Jesus because he kept claiming to be God. They didn't kill Jesus because he was a good moral teacher. They killed him for the sin of blasphemy. And it is a sin to claim to be God. Unless it's true. And then it ought, you ought to bow a knee if that's true. And he came. And we can look at the, the, the many, many evidences of what he did or what people said about him. Or even what he said about In fact, I looked through the, the Gospels this weekend and, and considered all the times in which Jesus referred to himself as divine. I found 23 of them. And I thought, what a great weekend. We can look at all of those this morning. And then, I love you, so I'm not going to do that to you. Um, but, but, but consider... Consider just a couple with me because we need to understand who Jesus understands himself to be. So in John chapter 8, he's dealing with some Pharisees and they're having this, this big argument. And he comes out and eventually says, your father, Abraham, John eight fifty six. you don't have to turn there if you, you can more welcome to. But your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. And he saw it and was glad. So Jesus says, Abraham, who lived 1,500 years ago, saw my death. And this causes a great deal of consternation and and difficulty amongst the Pharisees who, in the next verse, say, you're not 50 years old. Um, And you have seen Abraham? Right? How can you say that you've seen Abraham? You're not 50. Uh, You're you're certainly not 1,500. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. And so what Christ is doing, he's doing a couple things here. One, he's telling us that he is as, as, at least as old as Abraham. But more than that, he is claiming to be God. When he says, I am, that is the name of God in which God revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Who shall I say is sending me? Tell him I am is sending you. It's the word Yahweh or Jehovah. It's the name of God. And Jesus is claiming to be Yahweh. He's claiming to be Jehovah. And just so we're not reading too much into this, pastor's getting carried away. Look at the ver- verse 59. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple ground. They want to kill him for that because they stone blasphemers. He's claiming to be God, which, but he, it's not his time. So he just, I don't know how he gets away. I don't know if it's like poof and he's just gone, a big cloud of smoke or, or what's going on there. I love verses like that. All of a sudden, he's not going to be humbled. I'll let you have me when it's, when I'm ready for you to have me. And so off he goes or consider perhaps Mark chapter two. Um, there's a paralyzed man brought to Jesus and they want Jesus to heal this man. And Jesus looks at this man. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And this caused a great deal of trouble amongst those who are around. They said, blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're right, by the way. That's God's prerogative to forgive sins. And Jesus is claiming to be able to forgive this man's sin. You kind of understand how strange that is. If you and I were standing next to each other and, and Bobby came up and, and he hit you in the face and I said, don't worry about Bobby, I forgive you. 
Right? You probably wouldn't appreciate that very much. You would think, wait a second, I didn't, he didn't hit you, he hit me. Why are you forgiving him? Jesus is acting as if he's the offended party. And he is. Because he is God himself. Or just lastly, think about John 20 and verse 28 when Thomas falls at the resurrected Lord's feet and says, My Lord and my God. And this is Jesus' time to correct him, right? If it's not true, wait a second, Thomas, you got, all, you got this wrong. Do you just call me Lord? Do you just call me God? Hold on, buddy, we're getting carried away. No. He doesn't correct him. He actually commends Thomas and commends all who will believe like Thomas. In fact, there's a famous Jewish author who writes today named Jacob Neusner, who is not a believer in Jesus. But he has read uh, the Gospel accounts, and when he concluded, he wrote, When I see how Jesus acts and what he says, I want to say to this Jesus, Who do you think you are? God? Yes, that is, that is exactly what he thinks he is. He thinks he is God, so he got it right. That's who Jesus is. He's in the form of God. Now, I, listen, there, is, there are a lot of people running around today and have been, in fact, for hundreds of years who are saying that this idea that Jesus is God is something the church added in the second, third century. And they just kind of added that to him. And, and the Da Vinci Code books are all about that. And there's a number of other things out there that are all about that. Scholars believe that the book of Philippians... But whether they're Christian or non-Christian scholars, it was written about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. They also mostly believe that verses 6 through 11 are, is actually a, a hymn that Paul is quoting. And, and, and there's a great poetic form to it in the Greek. This is why the NIV puts it in poetic line. So it would be kind of like if I were preaching a sermon to you and I started quoting Amazing Grace in the middle of my sermon to prove a point to you. And you would all recognize what I'm doing. He's quoting Amazing Grace. And you all know that. What is what Paul is doing? He's quoting, so this book was written 25 years after Jesus was raised. He's quoting something that the church already had. And and, and what this does is it tells us what that the, the church at its very beginning understood Jesus Christ to be God himself. He is the eternal God. That is the very heart of Christianity. So my question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God? I do. I believe He has proven it to us. I also believe that all of eternity hangs upon one's answer to that question. I believe if you reject Christ as God, God will reject you to a Christless eternity. But if you bow your knee to Christ, if you confess with your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that literally that He is Yahweh, that He is God, and believe in your heart that He raised Him from the dead, you will be saved, the Bible tells us. And so we begin, and I know I spent a little bit of time there, we're going to pick up speed, that Jesus is in the form of God. This is where He starts, but notice that Jesus did not seek His own advantage as we consider this self-denial. Read on in verse 6, and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's, that is, he's not clinging to His divine rights, His privileges. He's not considering all this, His divinity as a th- opportunity to exploit or to get for himself. In fact, the, ver- the second word in verse 6, go, it says, who though he was in the form of God. You could translate that though 
as a because. I don't know if anybody's translation does. Who, because, and I like that translation better, as do a number of people. And it would read this way. Who, because he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I like that because it, it teaches that, that Jesus, precisely because he is God, has nothing to prove. He has no needs. He doesn't need to grasp after things, after privileges. Rather, uh, because he is God, he is willing to give and to give and to give. And to deny himself. In fact, verse 7 says he made himself nothing. He, he emptied himself of all his divine advantages, his privileges. He gave up a face-to-face relationship with God for the filth of this earth. It gave up the adoring presence of angels for the spittle of men. and gave up a place of peace and love and joy and majesty for injustice and violence and mercy. And he gave up unimaginable splendor and delight and became a nobody. He emptied himself. He became nothing. He became a no one. He who was eternally God. said, I'm not going to use that in order to get and get and get. I'm going to deny myself and become a no one. It is the mind of self-denial. It is the opposite of selfish ambition. And so I exhort you and me to have this mind, which is also in Christ Jesus, a mind of self-denial. We struggle in this area. I struggle in this area. I do not know why it is so hard for those people who follow Jesus to let go of their iron-tight grasp on their own preferences and their own grudges and their own privileges. When we see what Christ has done, He denied Himself. And I believe when the more we see it and the more we cherish it, the more we will be free to deny ourselves as well. But that's not all that Jesus did. Step two, the next step down, is Christ's humbling service in His humanity. Notice verse 7. He says, but He made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. We see that Christ became a servant or a slave. That, that this perhaps may mean what he be referring to when he says he emptied himself. That he, he became not a noble in a palace, but a servant who was devoted his life to meeting the needs of other people. In fact, it's interesting to know that, that word form there, the form of a servant. It's the same word used in verse 6. So when he says he, his very nature is God, well, Christ's very nature, his very form, is to be a servant. Isn't that amazing? That for some reason the Bible does not see a contradiction between divinity and service. In fact, it shows us to serve is divine. It's Christ-like. He became. He didn't just act like a servant for 30 years. He became a servant and is forever a servant. He came to serve us. In fact, you think about a slave, and the slave has no rights and, uh, and owns nothing. And, and what did Jesus say? He didn't own anything. He, he, didn't, he didn't own uh, land or a house or heirlooms or jewelry or business or a boat or a horse. He didn't, he didn't own anything. He borrowed everything. He borrowed a, uh, a place to be born. He borrowed a boat to cross the sea. borrowed a donkey to enter Jerusalem. borrowed a room to celebrate the Passover. He borrowed a tomb in which to be buried. This is the one who rightfully owns all things. He was created all things who and he owned none of it rather he chose to be a slave the sovereign creator of the world chose 
to be the slave, the servant of creation. He lowered himself into service. You see, his, his humility is not only in rel- relative to the Father, but it's in relative to us. He not only took, humbled himself beneath the Father, but he even humbled himself beneath us. There was nothing he would not do as his servant. He, he, would, he would even take the lowliest role, as, as you know, in, in John chapter 13, when he washed the disciples' feet there at that Passover meal. In fact, John tells us, that, that tells us what Jesus is thinking. He says he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. And so Jesus knows I have all power, and I have all authority, and I've come from God. I'm headed back. And knowing all this, John says... He rose from supper and laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And and you, if you've been a Christian for for any length of time, you're you're aware of how low that role is. I mean, uh, we don't even like feet in our day. I mean, feet are gross, aren't they? Uh, we'll, We'll touch each other's hands, but you stick your foot at me, I'm recoiling. Right? We, no, we don't touch people's feet. It's just their feet are gross. Um, but you think about what they were like in that day. They're wearing sandals and they don't have showers and baths and, and it's filth and it's dirt and sweat and it's animal products and, um, and it's in between the toes and it's um, terrible and filthy. And, and Jesus, who knew he was God, rose up and began to wash feet. It would be like if someone of great power came to your house for dinner, I think. I want to say the president, but some of you would like the president to actually do this. So think of someone else. <laughs> so someone of great power comes over for your house for dinner. And, and after supper, um, he gets up and he takes his jacket off and he goes into your bathroom and, and begins to clean around the, the base of your toilets. Um, and, and you would be stunned. You'd be thinking, what in the world are you doing? Stop that. You should, you should not be doing that. This is what Jesus is doing for them. And, and they are stunned by, by what he's doing. And when he finished washing all 12 of their feet, he asked them, do you know what I've done for you? Now, I think he's afraid of what their answer is going to be. So he doesn't give them any time to answer the question. And he, he in fact, he answers it himself as he says in John 13 and verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. This is what he has done. He who is greater than all of us. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He holds all things together. He comes to them and says, I have authority over all cosmos. I still storms and I heal the sick and I raise the dead. And you are right to call me Master and Lord, for I am such and far more than that. And now I am showing you what you must do. You must, like me, become a servant. He treated us worthy of His service when we were not. In humility, He counted us more significant than Himself. Have this mind in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. 
The mind of a servant. In fact, he'll go farther down. Even though he took form of a servant, he became a human to do it. Verse, read it on in verse 7. It says, being born in the likeness of man. He, the Creator became born. He was a real baby. He cried when he was hungry. The Creator had his diapers changed and was potty trained and fell and scraped his knee and ran back crying to his mother and played like other children and was teased because he had a big nose or big ears or was clumsy. And he he learned, the Bible tells us in Luke 2.52, he grew in wisdom. He learned to eat and talk and read and write. He had emotions. He laughed and cried, felt overwhelming sorrow and trouble in his soul and had joy and anger. Do not minimize the humanity of Jesus. Because when you do, you minimize the work that he has done to come and to rescue you. We think he's a little baby in Mary's arms and he's thinking, boy, Mary, you don't have a clue. It's not what he was doing. He became a real person and forever will be a real person. The Greek mythology, their gods pretend to be people. Our God became a person. The immortal God kicking and crying as a helpless baby. Verse 8 says, and he was found in human form. Um, found in the appearance of man. It doesn't mean he simply looked like to be a man. It means how others perceived him. So he didn't show up in a cape with a big S on his chest or a JC on his chest or whatever. They looked at him and they thought he was just a man, just like you and me. In fact, he goes home and, and they say to Jesus, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? What are you talking about, Jesus? We know you. Our kids played Little League together. You're not God, buddy. And they looked like just a man to them. He was in the appearance of man. And they were offended. He said, you're no different than us, Jesus. When he would say such things. So to become a man is humbling enough. But to be not even recognized by who you are is even more so. As he even became subject to man's authority. He was not only not known by them, but he's subject to them. He obeyed his parents, for instance. He, 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 you were supposed to obey our parents. The Bible tells us as much, and Jesus would. And, and, but it's a little weird when you're the one who created your parents. Right? Because you think, you know, there's times you don't want to be disciplined, and you're saying, Dad, I don't think so. I actually hold you together. Um, but <laughs> Jesus did not use that line. Or maybe, you know, some of you guys have bosses that... You maybe you know aren't your favorite people all the time, and and you're you still have to submit to them. Well, what if you actually made your boss? You would like to march into his office and say, "Listen here, Mr. Green. You know I have created you, and I'm not going to do what you say." But that's Christ humbled himself. He literally did that. I wonder if you're here this morning. You're not a Christian. Do you ever think about humility as part of God? I think that's pretty rare in the world's religions. And yet it's throughout Christianity that, that God is humble. And what happens, I think, in a lot of the world religions, we're just creating gods who are a lot like us, full of pride, self-seeking. And here's Jesus, who is like none others. He who should be praised by all people, who in his majesty should, we should all cast our faces to the ground, is an unrecognizable man. And he added to himself humanity forever. He who created all things is forever now joined to his creation. And he did it so he could die for you. And so lastly, consider 
this last step down, Christ's humbling sacrifice in his death. We see in verse 8 that Christ was killed. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So we know he's obeying the Father. Jesus would tell us over and over again that I, for John 6.38, for instance, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to be, do the will of him who sent me. I've come to obey the Father. What is the Father's will? It is that His Son be killed. That is His will. Jesus die, be murdered. And this is what He did. His obedience knew no limit. And you see that in the trial of Christ, don't you? When He is mocked in this mockery of a trial and they bring Him for before public scorn and everyone's accusing him of all these false crimes and they ridicule him and beat him and slap him and spit upon him and parade him and scourge him and all the while he is the one who's holding the rods together by which he is beat and he is the one who creates the glands in the mouth by which they are summoning up this spittle to cast upon his face he is holding it together he humbled himself becoming subject to his creation he humbled Humbled himself just to be on the planet, to leave heaven. He humbled himself at birth to grow and to live as a child. And then as a man, he humbled himself to go unrecognized by everyone upon this world who he made and whom he loved. He humbled himself in his slave-like service. He who should be served by all of creation came to be its slave. But you've got to think there's a point where he's going to say, that's enough. I'm not going any farther. I've done enough. I've done enough. But he would not say that's enough. He would let himself be killed. Obedient to the point of death. God who is life, who creates life and gives life and sustains life, dies. And that's not even the bottom. As we see, Paul ends his descent by, at the end of verse 8 saying, even death on a cross. You could, I think, tell that Paul's kind of gasping here. Even death on a cross, he says. He's almost out of breath thinking about it. He's overwhelmed at the thought. Even the cross. There's many ways to die, aren't there? I'm sure all of us hope that we'll have a nice, peaceful, natural death if Jesus doesn't come before we die. But if he had to be killed, he could have been beheaded like James or run through with a sword like Matthew or stoned like Stephen or hanged by, like Luke. But he wouldn't. He would face the ultimate disgrace and suffering. The creator of the universe hanging naked in the sky before a mocking world with his hands and feet nailed to a cross. And I thought this week about the humiliation of what He has done for us in the cross. And I, I can, looked at the, the pain in which He experienced and thought about sharing that with you. One ancient historian calls the cross dying a thousand deaths. But I simply just want the time we have left to consider not the pain of the cross, but the shame of the cross, the disgrace of the cross. You know, the Gentiles considered the cross to be scandalous. It was a picture of shame. And so to all the Gentiles, Jesus died a shameful death. In fact, no Roman citizen would ever be crucified. It was against the law. The crucifixion was reserved for traitors and terrorists. 
The, you wouldn't even use the word cross in polite society. It was considered an obscenity. It's a cuss word, the word cross. And in fact, the ancient his, uh, philosopher uh, Cicero, he would write that let the n- name of the cross be far removed, not only from the body of, of the Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his ears, and his eyes. And you could understand why. If he was on the cross, you have a pouring out of blood and a loss of other bodily fluids. You have a gasping for breath, a begging to be killed. This man who's hanging exposed before people as they hurl their insults and stones and other things at him while he's pinned to this cross. It was a shameful death. But even more than that, to the Jews, it was a cursed death. The Jews have a passage in Deuteronomy 21, uh, 21, which says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. This is, I think, what Paul means when he says, even the cross. He's understanding that that the Jews understand the man who's been crucified, which is a type of hanging in their mind on on a tree, is cursed by God. The crucified man is a cursed man. And they're right, by the way. Jesus was cursed by God for my sin and for your sin. And so to the Gentiles, it's a a shameful death. And to the Jews, it's a cursed death. But to God, it's a sin-bearing death. Paul, referring to Deuteronomy 21, that passage I just read, wrote in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Peter would write that he himself bore our sins in his body on a cross. He became our substitute. He died for my sin. He paid for that. He became cursed for me and for you. One pastor says, while he was hanging on the cross from below, Satan and all his hosts assailed him from beside him. Men heaped their scorn upon him. From above, God dropped upon him the pallor of darkness. And from within, there arose the bitter cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Into this hell, the hell of Calvary, Christ descended. As he was cursed by God, and he, brothers and sisters, was cursed by God so you could be blessed by God. He was suffered shame so that we can be honored. We, we deserve, in our rebellion and our pride and our sin, God's judgment have been clothed in Christ's righteousness because he died on the cross. So be clear that before Jesus can ever be your example, and he ought to be, he must become your Savior must save you before you can follow Him. Perhaps you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. I, I want you to realize that Jesus is not simply a teacher who shows up and tells you what you must do to get to heaven. He shows up and does what must be done in order for you to get to heaven. All the other world's religions have their moral teacher who shows up one day and says, this is the way that that you can become acceptable to God. And you have Buddha, and you have Muhammad, and Joseph Smith, and and John Travolta, and, and all these guys running around telling you how to be acceptable to God. 
Maybe, right? They're not exactly sure. We hope it's enough, but you'll find out when you get there. But it's too late once you're there. But, but maybe it is. Well, that's not what Jesus has done. Jesus is different. Jesus has come not to tell us what to do in order to get to heaven. He has come to announce what He has done for you. That He has paid a ransom for your sin. Because God will not sweep my sin and your sin under the rug and wink at it like a judge taking a bribe. He is good and holy and just and He will punish my sin either in me or in one who would take my place. There is one who has taken the place of sinners, the only perfect man ever to live. And if you will bow your knee and say, You are my God and I will follow you. Forgive me. You will be cleaned and forgiven and welcomed into eternity by a loving and gracious God. Turn from your sin. Christian, do you realize that one of the sins that Jesus died for is the sin of disunity? It's the sin of selfish ambition? It's the sin of failure to serve your brothers and sisters Failure to lay down your preferences for others. He died for that. It's very much unlike us. In fact, if we were to write a similar passage about ourselves, we probably would reverse it. We would say, though, we were not God. We thought equality with God something to seek. So we exalted ourselves and sought to be a master who was served. Spent our life seeking comfort and security. This is how we often live. We're willing to fight each other, fellow Christians, in order to get what we want. We're willing to gossip about them. We're willing to divide a church over them because we are, by nature, self-seeking people. We see, uh, you, you want to see this? Come over and spend time with my children. Um, children are not that they're any more self-seeking than I am or you. They just don't know how to hide it like we do. Right? <laughs> They scream and shout, and we've learned. We usually don't scream and shout. Sometimes we do. Um, But we learn, I'll just kind of conceal it. Don't you think that humility within Christianity is something we talk about a lot, but rarely seem to progress in? Actually, rarely grow in? I mean, we're all familiar with this. This is nothing new. We all know this. But for some reason, we, we don't make any movement And so as we end this morning, I I just want to present that question. How are we to grow in this? And and I I think, as I've told you many times, I think we grow in this not by by putting on my list. Be humble. That's what I'm going to do now. I'm going to add that. That's number 468. Be humble. I think it is by cherishing what Jesus has done in order to rescue you. I think it is by considering daily in humility he has denied himself. In heaven, in humility, he served you in his humanity. In humility, he sacrificed himself in death. It's all for your eternal gain. If he had our mindset, we would still be in our sins. He would not have come for us. So my question is, do you value this work? Do you value the gospel? Are you willing to let your life, as he said in chapter 1, verse 27, be worthy of the gospel of Christ? My hope is that the more we consider this, we become stunned by it and overwhelmed by it and delight in it. And we declare, that's what I want to be like. I want to be like Jesus. I want to live like that. I want to be free from seeking my own preferences and desires and be willing to serve because Christ has 
serve me and He loves me and I love Him. Grace will change you. It will change who you are. Don't worry so much about changing the things you do. Start with who you are. Let it change you. Let it make you from inside a humble person as you consider what Christ has done. You know, my my children have discovered that there are two kinds of balloons. There are balloons that float to the ceiling. And there are balloons that the kind that daddy blows up that sink to the ground. Right? And, and they want to know what's wrong with daddy's balloons. You know, all my kids reached an age. I'm sure your kids, you know, when they're that age, they go, what's going on? Why is it? But then they soon learn that if you take the balloon, daddy's balloon, and you smack it, it floats to the ceiling. And that's kind of fun. And then they create a game. And this is a game I played when I was a kid, and you played, and kids have been playing for quite some time. You smack the balloons to see how, how, how long you can keep them in, in the air. And I think that's kind of how we live our Christianity. I really think you come here, a lot of people come to churches on Sunday morning and they're hoping that they get smacked real good. And we leave and we're all fired up about forgiveness or prayer or missions or humility or whatever we talked about and say, yeah, I'm going to go do that. And we leave the conferences and we're all just kind of pumped up. Here I go. I'm going to do that. But by Wednesday, we're not flying as high, are we? And by Saturday, we're pretty close to the ground. And I better get to church service. I need to get smacked again. And that's what you pay me to do. Just every week, I'm going to smack you up. You're hoping, I hope he smacks me real good. I'm going to fly real high this week. And, And I wonder if there's another way. I wonder if we could actually fill ourselves with helium. I think the gospel in this metaphor is helium. And I think the more we preach it to ourselves, the more we wake up and just think about the gospel before I put my foot out of bed. I'm a, I'm a sinner who's been loved by God. He made me, loves me, died for me. We think about it when we're driving our cars and interacting with our spouses. The more we will change, the gospel will, will let you fly. It will change how you treat your wife. It will change how you spend, give you power over lust and contentment. It will create in you this self-sacrificing humility if you cherish Jesus, if you cherish the, the gospel. And so I, like our brother Paul, commend to you Jesus, who because he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness uh, and being born as a man, he appeared in the likeness of man and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for you and for me. Father, we thank you for Jesus. I, I pray to you, Father, I hope the heart of your people here We want to be more like Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. We want the mind of Jesus to be in us. Help us. Help us, please, Father, through your spirit and through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.